Now I want you to notice the uh, title of this message today is The Great Omission. And um, I am in that title not referring to being left in Miami for two days. Um, I'm not referring to life in Bolivia without luggage. Um, I'm not referring to finding out that although you have a registration for return flight, um, your booking has been adjusted to the next day by the airline without your permission. Um, I have far more nobler uh, reasons for this title and um, um, probably the, the greatest omission, honestly, um, over the last two weeks um, was the fact that you were not with us to be able to meet people um, that are wonderful people who love the Lord and to interact with those that we got to interact with. Um, um, I personally missed you um, and really wish that you could have been there just to take all this in and, and really just to kind of flesh out what we've been talking about the, the past number of weeks as we've been looking at missions. And, um, you know, so today I, I, wanna, I want us to, uh, to really jump into the idea of what this text is really all about. And I've entitled it The Great Omission for a very important reason. I want to make it clear that when, uh, out, of, out of good intentions, churches and Christian ministries adjust or weaken the gospel to make it more palatable, more easy to comprehend, or unobjectionable, they, they not only leave people um, without hope, or possibly without hope, depending on how weak and, and, and tainted the gospel presentation is, but without hope, who think that they are part of God's family, but they also omit the core essence of the Great Commission. And so what I want to stress here is that oftentimes, even in this passage, when we read it, we read it with a wrong understanding of one of the, uh, the key components in this passage. So let's just read it again, just follow along as I read. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is it in this passage um, that, uh, it, that Matthew ultimately is driving at by recording the words of Christ? What is it that Christ is stressing here in his commission to these disciples? Is it the need to go? And the answer is, well, no, that's not the core essence. That is certainly a big part of what he's saying, um, but going is not the key part. Um, is it the need to baptize? And the answer there again is no, it is certainly necessary uh, for a public demonstration of that internal change um, it definitely represents that defining moment of conversion, uh, but it is not the core essence. Is it the need to teach? And the answer again is no. Um, that again is very, very important, um, and it's a specific dynamic that is absolutely necessary for the church to be doing and have as its focus. Um, but the essence really of, uh, of this passage is something different than those three things. Um, so we're looking here for the core reality. We're, we're looking for that, that part that is often omitted when Christians think that they are being faithful to this command. In the Koine Greek, if you read Greek, if you have any 
inclination about reading Greek or having an understanding there, um, it actually is very, very clear. What you have in this passage is you have a main verb with three supporting participles. And the three supporting participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. So those are important, but they are supporting something that is far more important, okay? And that far more important thing is this. The essence that is often omitted is the bigger picture of making disciples rather than gaining converts. Now, let me just kind of stress what, what I'm, I'm trying to get at here and what I believe is the big omission. I think that there are many people who read the Great Commission and in their mind they're thinking our job is to go out and get conversions. You with me there? But the commission here goes beyond that and must go beyond that. And the idea of making disciples is not making converts, although that is part of God's work through us, he is calling us to go beyond that and to make disciples, which is a much fuller um, orb kind of reality that should be our goal. Now, there's a huge difference here in how we allow the truths of this passage then to flesh out and shape how we do ministry. It affects how we do ministry in the church. It affects how we, how we pursue God in our lives. It affects how we do missions. I just want you to think through this a little bit. God is looking to use us as his people to bring others into his fold so that they will come face to face with the gospel and see their need of him because of their sinfulness and because of what he has done on the cross that, that if they put their faith and trust in him that they will then become a part of his family. That is all a wonderful good news message. But it doesn't stop there. It presses on with the goal of Christlikeness. Or as the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1 and verses 28 and 29, listen, him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. So the goal is not, I want to be careful saying simply, converts, right? You understand, I don't mean that in the sense I'm putting down conversion. But it's more than that. It goes beyond that. It is, it is part of this package of driving people to maturity in Christ. So to be faithful to the Great Commission, we need to have as our goal the full orb picture of what it takes to make disciples, not simply then the ability to share the gospel and see conversions. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that sharing the gospel is unimportant, unnecessary, or disobedient to this Great Commission. What I am saying is that when we limit the Great Commission to simply sharing the gospel or making converts, we fall short of the goal and the command that God has established for us in this Great Commission. This Great Commission requires an effort on our part to see the conversions established in the regular daily pursuit toward Christ-likeness. Now, friends, this, this affects how we do missions this way. Um, sometimes missions is seen kind of in an in-and-out um, way. You know, you, you take a short-term missions trip, you blow into a place, you do ministry, and you kind of blow out, and you say, hey, we, you know, we, we had you know, 50 people make a decision for Christ. You know, boom, they come back. 
and you can you know, wave your flags and say it was great. And I, I appreciate the effort and the desire to go, but the goal isn't just making converts. The goal goes beyond that. And friends, this is why developing a relationship and a partnership on the other end, if we are going to be doing ministry, is like, hey, we are a part of something, a missionary endeavor, evangelistic endeavor, and there are people that came to Christ during that time, but we know that when, when we did that ministry, that we are bring, then, you know, ushering those people to the the responsibility of those who are there to follow up and make sure that making disciples is possible. You understand that? So it's not just about conversion. And so how we do ministry um, on missions is affected and shaped by our understanding of what's going on in this passage. This is true in the local church where the philosophy of ministry is oftentimes get them in um, without a commitment to build them up. And friends, we could talk a lot about uh, certain ministry philosophies that have been true in the American culture where the idea has been, let's do all we can to get them in. And I'm thinking of one in particular that used all sorts of mechanisms and methodologies to get them in, and what ended up happening is people were starving in that church, and they ended up leaving that church and feeding all sorts of other churches around the area. Well, that church said, well, we don't mind just being a bring them in kind of a church. We don't mind them feeding out to other places. And I'm thinking, no, God's, God's given us a, a, more, a greater understanding, a greater responsibility to be bringing them in as well as to be building them up. You understand there's a difference there. Okay, and so we, we, as a church, we need to say, what are we gonna be about? And both have their place. So the great omission then is this, this, this neglect of this fuller, uh, more complete understanding of the Great Commission being making disciples. Now, this morning, let us approach this very familiar passage um, afresh, and I would ask you to, to approach it afresh because we know it so well, and be encouraged and empowered in our pursuit of making disciples by noticing three principles that drive this pursuit. And um, it's not necessarily gonna be how, how it's listed up here or even in your handout, I kind of added a couple more words to give explanation here. But first of all, there's the authority of the commander. The authority of the commander. Um, then there's the essence of the commission, which we've already established, the essence of the commission. And then there's the comfort of the commitment. The authority of the commander, the essence of the commission, and the comfort of the, of the commitment. And those will all make sense as we go through. Um, but just just hang on these pegs as we walk through this text together. So let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, we, we come to this very, very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, Lord, with an awareness that we have probably memorized it, that we've, if we've grown up in the church, have heard messages on it, in Sunday school and youth group and church services, missions conferences, Lord, we've, we've heard it so much. And Lord, there's a reason for that because these are your final words to your disciples. And Lord, they are powerful, they're packed with meaning, they're packed with instruction. And Lord, they're not just for the disciples, they're for us too. And Lord, I ask that today that we would be able to visit this passage afresh, that we would have our eyes and ears and hearts humble and open and Lord, ready for your Holy Spirit to, uh, to give us guidance and direction. Lord, we need this personally. We also need this as a church to be aware, Lord, for what you're calling us to. 
So Lord, what we know not will you teach us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And Lord, what we have not, would you give us today. We ask in your precious name, amen. So what we've discovered so far in our studies on missions is that God is concerned to bless the nations through us. That kind of summarizes the first two messages that um, we, we walked through. And then last time we were together, we talked about the fact that we've been called the three missions. The first mission being a vertical mission, the second mission being a horizontal mission. First mission, of course, vertical mission, to love the Lord with your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The horizontal mission, to love others as ourselves. And now, we're looking at uh, what I was calling a redemptive mission. This is what God has called us to ministry-wise, um, and that would be to make disciples of all nations. Again, these are the final words of Christ to his 11 disciples um, that Matthew records. So let's go to that same passage, but look at verse 16, and let's just kind of pick up the context a little bit. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's a reason why Matthew gives some of the detail here. And I just think it's interesting, as you go through the course of, of Scripture, you find out that, that oftentimes great messages from God to his people come via mountains. That's just something to consider here, that this is significant. Jesus takes up his disciples into a mountain. This happened in Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given, at Horeb where Elijah meets God, um, the Mount of Transfiguration where God reveals Jesus' glory to his disciples, uh, or to the few disciples there, the Sermon on the what? Mount. Okay, you see this, there's, there is kind of a pattern going on here. And so there is some sense of, of, of importance, not just because of what Jesus is saying, but also because of the timing and what's going on here. And, and, and Jesus gives his final words to his disciples. Now we're going to read this passage one more time, but I want you to notice as we read it this one more time, how the word all is being used. Just to, to, to understand the expansive um, you might want to say universality of what is being said here. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go there, therefore and make disciples of all nations, or ethnic groups, remember, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you literally all the days to the end of the age. That's what the, the Greek really has listed there. So there is the, these, these four kind of components of this word, all, all authority is given to Jesus to make disciples of all nations, teach them all that he has commanded, and Jesus promises to be with them all the days. It is universal in its scope, in its power, in its extent. And at face value, friends, it is quite daunting. How in the world are 11 disciples going to take this this incredible message of the gospel to all the nations, to all the ethnic groups, right? I mean, that's, that's the incredible ridiculousness of what is being stated here. You just think about it. Here's Jesus, and he has 11 disciples. That's who's left. And I'm giving you this great commission. And remember, in the story of the gospels, were there not people who said, oh, we'll follow you, we'll follow you, multitudes, and then all of a sudden, what happened to those multitudes of people? <whistles> Bye-bye. 
and they're left with 11. And yet history shows that those 11 shook the world with the gospel, okay? So what, what an absolutely incredible commission this is, but we, you know, we're settled with it because we know the stories. And that, just, just get the power of what's going on here. Twelve people gathered together. Jesus, eleven disciples. Here's what I'm giving. Okay? Now, it is daunting, but I think it's also important for us um, to apply a principle that we picked up a couple of weeks ago, and that is the principle of moral proximity as we looked at loving others and talking about those who are in our um, natural sphere, the closer the need, remember, the greater the obligation to help, and apply that to the context of missions here as we're looking at missions in particular, as we're looking at spreading the gospel and, and making disciples. I think, I think that principle fleshes out in this way. In the places where God has given us opportunity to bless the nations is found the greatest obligation to help. Now let me explain. Let's just assume that we establish a relationship with Bolivia. And let's just assume that we establish a relationship with, you know, someone give me another country, wherever it might be. India, okay? And then let's say with Russia. Then what we say as a church is, listen, we can do it all. But we know that God has established in his purposes that we have had this relationship with these three countries, that's where our missionary endeavor is going to be. You understand what I'm saying? And it's perfectly right and it's, it's appropriate to say we are limiting it to that because we can't do everything. So we've gotta be purposeful and we've gotta be mindful and strategic in how we do it in those particular areas. We're applying the same principle. Those are the places that God has given us to flesh out this, might wanna say, missional proximity, okay? So we come to our text again, and Jesus is gathering his disciples and calling them to mission. He begins with some comforting words. Now, I'm thankful that um, when Jesus speaks, it's not just, you know, it's not just do, do, do. It's, it's here's what I want you to do, but it's backed up with something. And, and, and here's the first comforting words. Um, and I'm calling this the authority of the commander. The commander is speaking here, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The imperative or the command that is going to be given is based on an incredible indicative or a truth. So the command that he's gonna give is based on the truth that all authority has been given to him. Now it's important for us to see that because when he is speaking, he is speaking for the Godhead, but he's speaking with authority, and if he's speaking with authority, granting us a responsibility, what comes with that responsibility? The authority then to carry that responsibility out. Why is this so important to us? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And let's just read a few verses in Ephesians 6 and then in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 6, verse 12, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Paul's saying is that we wrestle against. In our humanity, we can't overcome those things. We need a commander. We need a conqueror. We need someone that gives us the ability to do this task. 
back to chapter one and verse 20 and 21. We'll pick it up in the middle of verse 20. God raised him, talking about Christ, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. God has given Jesus authority. He set him up far above. He has authority, he's been granted authority, and he then speaks with that authority. So it's important for us to note that he is both commander and conqueror. The fact that he went to the cross and conquered death is the means by which now he commands us to do what he is saying. He is the conqueror, he is the commander. So all authority, this is delegated authority, has been given to Jesus. And he has the authority over heaven and earth, we're told. And what is that? He has authority over all principalities and powers. So just imagine any kind of authority, any kind of power, any kind of spiritual, demonic, or power otherwise, he has authority over it. Now sometimes in contemporary Christianity, we, you know, people blow in with certain ideas and it's almost like, it's almost like the demonic world and, and you know, God and Jesus are, are on the same plane. They're battling it out, right? Not so. Absolutely, totally, and completely not so. God is seated on his throne. He is totally in control of every created being, every demon, every ruler is under his control, and Jesus has authority over them all. We must seek to understand uh, that spiritual realm, not through the eyes of Hollywood, but through the eyes of God's word. And friends, if we, if we allow Hollywood to dictate that to us, we're gonna be in a mess as far as our understanding of who God is and what he does and how he, how he comes to our aid, okay? So not only is it his authority over, over heaven and earth, in particular all principalities and powers, but he has authority over his children, right? When, when we said, Jesus Christ, we are sinners, and we accept the accomplishment uh, on the cross as a payment, and we receive the forgiveness that comes through putting our faith and trust in, in you, we are saying that you are our authority. Now, let me just sidestep here. At what point in time does Jesus become Lord in your life? It's not a trick question. He is Lord, right? Whether you like it or not. The issue is, am I submitting to the fact that he is Lord? Now see, growing up in the context where I grew up, it's almost like, you know, okay, you, you, you accepted Jesus as Savior and then maybe at camp you have this another experience and you finally, you know, embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. It's like, no, 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 no. He is Lord. Um, I don't make him Lord. I have to submit myself to his lordship. And that, friends, that happens at salvation. The moment we, we say yes to Jesus in our cry for his forgiveness is the moment that we humble ourselves to his lordship. He is our authority, okay? But, and here's the missional part, he is also, has authority over all those who are not yet believers. Now we don't know who those are, right? He does! He's fully aware of that. 
If you believe what he has revealed in his word, that he is in the business of preparing the soil, that he is the one that draws people to himself, that there is a harvest out there that is ready, he is saying to us, guess what? I am at work. I know what I'm doing. I have authority over that. Now, would you go please and reap the harvest? He's already at work. Now, the thing is, we, you know, we don't know who that is, right? We don't you know, run around town, and you know, we're not running around Bolivia pulling up people's shirts saying, you know, do they have an E stacked on their back, you know, saying they're the elect. Aha, there's one. Found one. Good, over here. We don't know. That simply is part of what God does in his own wisdom. He does that. We don't comprehend the specifics of how he connects the dot. We just know he's a great God. He's a purposeful God. He accomplishes his will, and he has authority over those who are going to be his. And friends, that gives us confidence as we do ministry. Now, what he's saying here is this. His authority backs up this commandment. It is actually the foundation and the fuel for his church to fulfill this great commission. It is the basis of the word therefore we find in this text. So based on the authority and the power that has been given to Jesus who reigns supreme, we are commissioned and commanded to make disciples. That moves us then to the next thing, and that is the essence, the essence of his commission. The essence. So when it says in verse 19, go what? Therefore, it's referring back to his authority. Here's the authority. Now, based on this authority, go. Now friends, understand, that, 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 just, that lays a foundation, it gives a kind of a backdrop and a place setting so that when we step in to do what he's called us to do, we're not kind of out there on our own. We're, we're part of this, this sovereign purpose that he is, he is calling us to, that he's already an authority over. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the expression make disciples is the key phrase in this paragraph. What we have here, as I mentioned, is one verb with three supporting participles. Now, what is a disciple? At what point in time does a person become a disciple? And at what point in time does that discipleship end? This is a very important topic as we bring it into the perspective here because in some contexts we use the word discipleship kind of in a fuzzy way. Oftentimes we think of discipleship in the sense of, you know, a six-week Bible study for someone who's a new convert, right? You know, have you discipled that person yet? Well, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, is it, you know, just in the first year of their life? Is it more than that? Um, that's, I mean, that's how we use the word, but that isn't necessarily what the word is talking about. Um, the word disciple describes a person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. You are a disciple if you're a child of God. But as a disciple, you are growing, you are maturing, you're becoming more like Christ. So you might want to put it this way. A disciple is one who is, first of all, justified. Justified. I don't know if I put this on here. I did. Okay. Is justified. That means that they are, they are in a right position in Christ. They have been declared righteous. So here, at the point of salvation, boom, you are declared righteous, you are justified. 
But your walk with God doesn't end there. That begins your walk with God. And the next stage that you're in is the fact that you are, you are in this process of being sanctified. So you're justified and you're being sanctified, okay? This is your growth toward Christ-likeness. So being sanctified is this progress in Christ. Justification is this position in Christ. Sanctification is your progress in Christ, which finally ends with glorification, which is that ultimate promise in Christ, right? You will be glorified. So discipleship is, is, is all of those three aspects and so much more kind of as bookends, so to speak, about this is, this is this activity. So if you're a child of God, you are a disciple, and you don't stop being a disciple until you enter into heaven. So we talk about making disciples, it's not just about that initial justification is as important and as purposeful as that is, it also involves then this whole process of sanctification, this progress toward Christ-likeness, other words, godliness, um, you know, being like Jesus, all of those are words to describe this pursuit that God has called us to, which ends with glorification. So when a church is called to making disciples, you see, it's, it's much bigger than simply here are six lessons for a new believer. Now, there are three, three key ways then that Jesus says that we should endeavor to make disciples, and this is where the going, the baptizing, the teaching comes into play. So let's look at these together. There's going. Going then, um, says go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, the going is not so much a command for the, his disciples as it is an assumption. It's really a little bit more passive. It literally means having gone or as you are going. In other words, this is something that you are already doing. As you are going, you should be focusing on making disciples. Well, what's the picture? What's the idea there? You know, as you are raising your family, you're you're making those children disciples. You're, you're fashioning, you're shaping, they're growing them uh, to be more like Jesus Christ. Um, as you are you know, out shopping, the people that you rub shoulders with, as God gives you opportunity, you're, you're communicating with them, you're planting seeds, you're doing certain things like that. I mean, just last night as I was going over this, sitting in Starbucks, a guy kind of looked over at me and said, hey, you know, are, you, are, you, are, you, you know, are you in school? I said, well, I am in school, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually a pastor, and oh, you know, what church do you go to? And I told him what church I pastored, and I said, well, what church do you go to? Well, I go to such and such Baptist church, and he says, you know, I'm not perfect, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, if you were a child of God, guess what? You are perfect. Well, actually, Christ is perfect, and he covers you with his righteousness. And so we got a little conversation there, but my point here is to simply say that as you're going, you have opportunities to share the gospel. You have opportunities even with believers to continue to grow them in their walk toward Christ's likeness. Now, God's methodology um, of good news doesn't spread like a, a fog coming over the hills of San Francisco into a city. God's methodology spreads through the lips of his children, sharing, speaking, and talking the good news of the gospel, okay? It happens through words, 
It happens through people. That's why going is important. Now, I realize, you know, there's, there's radio, there's TV now where you can just kind of broadcast things, but those words still have to be created. Those words still have to be preached and, and taught and spoken, all right? And that's where Romans 10, 15 comes in. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, this, this going is not just for the original 12 disciples, actually 11, you might want to say, the perceived experts in ministry, the paid ones that use their gifts in the context of the local church. No, this is for anyone who calls themselves a child of God, anyone who has tasted of the grace of God and is now a citizen of the new kingdom. So for us, it is a way of life. Going means that we are always on, no matter the circumstances. All right? When life deals you a bad hand, guess what? You're still going. How you interact, how you speak, how you respond, um, also is part of that package. We're always looking, we're always ready to speak for God and about his good news. When we were in Bolivia, Matias shared a lot of incredible stories uh, about just how God provided. And one of the stories he shared with us was about a medical team that they had um, that they took to this really remote town up in the mountains. And I think it was like about two hours on the, the main road to get out there, which was simply a two-lane road that went up into the mountains, mostly paved. Um, and then you got off, and for, I, I can't remember how many kilometers, maybe, maybe 40 kilometers, um, they would cross this river over... 30 times. Now when I say cross the river, I'm not talking over bridges. I'm talking about crossing the river, okay? And they had video of, of all that. And they went up to this town with doctors and people who are all in training or actually professionals. And it, step back. One of the amazing things is the kind of people that Matthias has in his church, which is about our size. He's got a number of doctors. He's got a dentist. He's got his boys are all train, training um, in the medical profession so that they can use that for missionary endeavors too. But they're, they're, they go up to this village and they set up shop. Everyone from the village comes. They do you know, full body screenings as best they can. They give medicine as, as they have the resources and the medicine to give. They give counsel as far as nutrition and there's a lot of different things. And we were asking what are the things that they're running into and stuff. And while all that's happening, there's a team that is gathering all the children and having like a VBS. There are adults that are interacting with other adults and they're sharing the gospel. But they're using the medical mindset to get into this place. So it, but it takes a going. It takes a vision. It takes a, here's a place where there is no gospel presence. There, there, you know, there's a Catholic church, um, but there's really no gospel presence. And they go up there and they do this. Now, going, their going was purposeful, it was strategic, it was robust with the de declaration of the gospel. And so we just always need to be on and sometimes we need to be very, very strategic in what we're doing as far as going is concerned. But it also involves baptizing. Now baptizing um, is not a mechanism through which salvation comes. All right, and, and, and there are some schools of thought within the broad umbrella of Christianity that would say that baptism saves. You will not find that in scripture. 
Um, it comes as a result of reading into a couple of passages of scripture, but that's called baptismal regeneration, that, that the act of baptism actually saves the person being baptized. Um, what Jesus is identifying here is baptism simply as a means of giving evidence to the actual conversion that has taken place in the life of a believer. So it really is synonymous in this context with someone who has come to faith in Christ or someone who is truly a disciple. So it implies here repentance, forgiveness, and inclusion in God's family. Let me just read a couple of verses of scripture from Acts 2 uh, and uh, both from Acts 2. And verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there, was, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so you have this reception of the word. The idea there is that they acknowledged it, they humbled themselves before it. It was that gospel conversion um, dynamic going on there, and the result of that was that they, then they were baptized and then added um, to the church at that, at that point in time. So baptism used in this context then um, is, is really to identify with Christ and ultimately to identify with that group of people that are the body of Christ there. Now, to baptize means to immerse in water. Maybe literally you could say the word baptizo means to, to dip. Um, but to dip under. Um, kind of like, you know, when you get ice cream and you see you want, you want it fudge, you want it caramel, or what's that? Cherry, right? What's cherry? You get hot fudge, right? Um, but, you know, you dip it all the way down. That's the idea. It's just kind of immersing it and, and getting that full coverage of, of hot fudge. Um, that's the idea. But it was not new with Christianity. We must just be honest about that. Baptism was something that was used in other religions, it was used in the Jewish religion as a, as a form of kind of communicating spiritual cleansing. If you remember, John the Baptist came baptizing and that baptism was a baptism of repentance and a turning back to God, still within the context of Judaism, a wandering away from God and, and, and John comes preaching and there's this baptism of repentance and, and restoring um, this, this relationship with God, and then when Jesus comes, um, this baptism becomes this outward identification with him through faith. It was something a believer did as a public declaration of their faith. Now, we are to practice baptism by immersion for two primary reasons. Number one, because that's what the word baptize means, um, but secondly, because of the picture um, that it conveys, and it's the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he went down completely in the grave and that he rose from the grave. So th those are two primary reasons why baptism um, really should be by immersion. But, but the goal here and, and the idea that Jesus is conveying here is that in your going then also baptize and the idea there is make, make identification with those who are converts that they, are, that they truly are converts and they're brought into the you know, household of faith, into the church. So there's that conversion dynamic that is demonstrated by baptism. Now there's also teaching, all right? And this, if nothing else, the, the fact that Jesus mentions teaching here um, helps us understand that there's something more involved than simply conversion. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He wants disciples 
that are growing in their obedience and maturity through his word. Teaching implies ongoing growth in Christ-likeness. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, or you could say the child of God, may be complete, again, mature, equipped for every good work. But Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now what would you say are, or fits into that category of all that I have commanded you? Anyone have any idea? How about the whole counsel of God? That's how one writer talks. I have not failed in teaching you the whole counsel of God. Um, but we could, we could summarize it, just maybe a few things that might be key important things, just a high view of scripture. I mean, that this is God's very word and teaching the importance of that and helping people understand what this is because without an understanding of the, view, the word of God and a high view of that, um, people are gonna fall short in their walk with God and their pursuit toward Christ-likeness. The so- secondly, the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's not something that you did. Oh, you responded, but it's God that came and sought you out. It's what he accomplished by virtue of his son on the cross. He is totally um, in control and aware and sovereign over your salvation. And um, you know, nothing is done by accident. God is never, never caught off guard. He always does what seems best to him. And then there's the third one, the depravity of man. This is one that's um, often shunned in our Christian culture, but it simply is saying this, that we're not just a little imperfect in need of a boost from, you know, from, from Jesus so that we can be in a position to please God. No, we are totally and completely uh, pre-Christ in rebellion to God, um, anti-God, pursuing our own sinful and selfish pleasures. We are completely and totally tainted with the effect of sin. And we need Christ, and we need salvation, and when we, when we are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, um, that depravity is covered by the righteousness of Christ. All right, next one uh, would be you know, God's desire to work through us. You, know, you don't just become a convert and then go and live your own life for your own purposes, right? I mean, God has something then to work through you whether it means being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, being a, a worker, being you know, involved in the church, you know, sharing your faith, being faithful to the, to the Great Commission. And you know, another one here, number five, growth in Christ-likeness um, is found um, in our obedience to the word. And this is just a summary of, of some of the things that, that uh, we could say are, are primary or important here. Um, but listen just to, to, to John 14, 23. Just listen to what, what Jesus says here. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. So in other words, a disciple it needs to be taught the word of God, and it's the word of God that is fleshed out, and when that disciple is obedient, that's an evidence of his love for his master, okay? Um, so 
there's this, there's this need for, for the church then to be faithful to teach those who are disciples in their pursuit of Christ likeness. So the great commander who sends us on a great commission also comforts us with um, a commitment. Let's just think about this commitment. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now just read that statement. What, what word do you think is the dominant word in that statement? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. No, it's behold. See, we're so, it's so familiar. What does the word behold mean? I mean, when Jesus, when Jesus, you know, when the angel came to Mary, you know, behold, I have good news. Is that right? No, behold! I have something to tell you, right? So here's this, here's this commission, and it ends up with this, listen, here is what I am telling you. I have been given authority, and with that authority, I am commissioning you to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. But listen, behold, listen to this. This is so important. I the one who went to a cross, died on that cross for your sin and for the sin of the world. I am the one who am sending you out, but I leave you with this promise. I will be with you. So it says, behold, listen to what I'm saying. Now, this is really important um, because if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 23, go back there. Chapter 1 and verse 23. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. This is the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Behold, Emmanuel, God is with you. End of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I will be with you. What do you think Jesus wants to communicate to us? The fact that that when he, he sends us on this commission, we are not alone. He sends us as a commander would send us. He commissions us with this wonderful message, making disciples, but he also comforts us with his commitment to be with us every step of the way. Now go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and you know this passage probably is the passage on discipline. So we don't want to go there. Uh, Yeah, yeah, all right. But you know, the important thing here is that this is a, church discipline is a hard, hard topic for God's people. It's an incredibly difficult topic. 
But I want you to listen to, to what's going on in this passage and then and hear the punch at the end of it. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You're like, <gasps> man, this is hard. How do we do this? And that's a whole another set of series of sermons, but incredibly important and, and difficult, but powerful interaction with the body of Christ. And then, verse 18, truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, who's speaking here? Anyone have a red letter edition? It tells you it's Jesus speaking. Not that that was you know, originally in the, the letters, right? They didn't kind of change their pen and say, okay, it's red now. Um, that's there to help us. Um, but he says, again, and this, I mean, this is, he's saying, listen, I'm, I, authority, whatever's bound on earth, whatever's bound in heaven, this is, this is part of your responsibility. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I, what? Among them. That's another way of saying what? I am with you. Now, my point here is simply to say this. The the gospel begins with the fact that Jesus is with us, or coming to be with us. It ends with the fact that Jesus sends us on our journey with a commission and promises to be with us. But even in his instructions to the church, when you are being faithful and when you are gathered, dealing with problems, hard problems in the church, he promises that he is actually at work with the church as they're going through these times. This is not limited to prayer. This is in the context of church discipline. This is the context of restoration. This is in the context of a church loving on people who have been in conflict or have been stuck in sin. God says, I am with you. So he's with us as we meet together as a church. He's also with us as we go to bless the nations. Friends, that is our redemptive mission, to be going with him, with his commission to the nations with the agenda of making disciples, converts, but also converts who are growing in Christ-likeness, growing toward being like Christ, which means there must be some going involved, there must be some baptizing involved, and there must be teaching involved. All those are absolutely necessary for us to be faithful in this great commission. Now, I wanna bring this to a close. Oh boy, I'm not clicking like I need to. All right, behold, you got all that. Um, <laughs> all right, so here, here are just some, some, final, some final thoughts, all right? The great omission. We've, we've already talked about one great omission, and that is the failure of the church to make disciples in that big picture. Now I want to caution us as a church not to make the same mistake in the opposite direction. And that would be, <clears throat> let's put it this way, to to address the great omission of ongoing discipleship is to risk another great omission, that of ongoing evangelism. Now here's where the pendulum swing can happen. We can say, aha, see the great omission is that the church is not 
making disciples and is not focusing on their time of, of, of training people up in their, their walk with God and emphasizing all that. And so we're going to focus on that and, and the, the possibility is to then neglect the, the, the heart of evangelism that needs to be there too. And, and what I'm saying is that, that I think that there has been a focus in many contexts to the view of the Great Commission is simply evangelism and I got a convert. And what God is calling the church to do is to do this and to do this. To evangelize and to grow people in their walk with God, right? Now the reality is, when does that growth in Christ-likeness take place? Well, it takes place in the context of a Sunday morning gathering. It takes place in the context of a home group or a Bible study. It takes place in the context of, you know, one-to-one relationships at Starbucks or Panera or Pete's or wherever you might meet or in your living room. All of those are times when you're interacting and you're growing and you're discipling and, and you're pushing people toward Christ-likeness. And you and I have not arrived there. We will not arrive there, but it's a pursuit that we are all, all involved in. And so we must recognize that a lot of our time and effort and a lot of our purpose is to be robust in the teaching of God's word and his gospel and learning how to know it, how to apply it, so that we can do what with it? So that we can proclaim it. Now proclaiming it is not just for making disciples, it is also so that we can proclaim the good news to those who don't know Jesus Christ. It is easy It is easy for churches sometimes to say, we're just gonna be about converts, which means that we don't have to develop all this teaching, we don't have to be robust in this dynamic, we're just gonna trust that God is gonna grow people. And I think there's neglect in that. I think it's also possible though over here to say, you know what, because we believe so strongly in God's purpose of sovereignty uh, in, in this world and he is the one that draws people to himself, we kind of lean away from our, our edge to be evangelists. And I'm preaching this to myself just as much as I am preaching this to you. We have a responsibility for both. And so that must be our pursuit, not just as a church, but even as we do missions. And let me just, just tell you, in our time in, in, in Bolivia, we met some, some great brothers and sisters in Christ, um, but we also recognize that there is a lot of I want to say, shallowness in many of the churches. And that's not a knock against them. It's just the reality of, of pastors not, at, not being trained and not being at the place where they, they understand God's word in certain ways and know how to preach it and how to teach it and what it says and how it all fits together. Because, you know, as we shared before, Matthias has a number of churches where there, there are no pastors that are serving. You have, a, you have a brother or sister saying, I'm willing to do this. In fact, you have his son, Matito, who is bouncing from this church in the, in the morning and going to another church on Sunday night. And you have other brothers that are going different places. You have one brother that every weekend goes for four hours on a trip to get to a church to open the word and comes back again. He's a professional in Santa Cruz. And, and they're, they're, they're longing for men to actually take the responsibility of, of preaching and teaching in, in, in that pastoral role. And so one of the things they need is they, they need more robust teaching and, and they need to, to learn how to do that, how, how God can work through them in that capacity. Um, we've definitely attempted to make that a part of, of our church. Okay? That's why honestly, w- you know, when, when, when I get done 
and I've been speaking for an hour, um, there's only a couple of you that fall asleep. I mean, you, you come, you know, hey, Rod's going to be speaking for 45 minutes to an hour, more likely not the 45 minutes. It's going to be the hour. And most of you are okay with it because you're here. But in many contexts, that's the, you know, it's like 20 minutes, man. He's still, he's going to go more? See, we're, we're, we're used to that and we're okay with that because we, we value growth. But not everyone is maybe at that place saying we, we, we want that and we, we value that or we have the tools to do that. And so a, from a missional perspective, we want to help those guys grow in that dynamic. So, so teaching and training and, and going with this great commission, with this, 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 this kind of bigger picture is important. That's why as we do ministry, let's just use Bolivia since we've been there, if, if we take a team and we do hands-on ministry and we're sharing the gospel and someone comes to the faith in Christ, we know, hey, listen, here's this person. Let's, let's usher them to talk to this brother who is the pastor in this location so that ongoing discipleship can take place. We're not just kind of blowing into a place, handing out tracts and sharing the gospel and blowing out and saying, look at this, we did this. And it's, it's not that that is wrong. It's just if you're going to do that kind of stuff, you've got to think big picture and how is the follow-up going to take place. Okay? So we, we just need to balance this evangelism side with this, this, this growing and discipleship side and make sure that we're not out of balance. Yet at the same time, in the context of our gatherings, what is, what is most of our time going to be involved in? On a Sunday morning, more than likely, what, what kind of message are you going to hear me preach? Is it a message for unbelievers? No. Because you're going to say, okay, that's Rod, you know. Um, I'm already a child of God, Rod. You know, I need, I need more. Okay, get that. But guess what? On, on Christmas and on Easter... What's going to happen? I, I'm probably going to I'm probably going to drop some of that agenda and say, listen, you know what? There's more likely going to be some people here that are not believers, and I want to make sure that that we're opening the Word of God in such a way that we can present the truth of the gospel clearly and crisply, and that God can use us in that endeavor. And so we, we're going to adjust at certain times for that. Or, quite frankly, if as a pastor, I mean, we're a small enough group. I, I see a bunch of people I've never seen before. I have no idea. I'm going to make sure, even no matter what I'm speaking on, they're just going to step back, and the gospel is going to flesh out. You know, you just squeeze you know, passages of Scripture. The gospel is going to pop out here and there, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> you see, you use those opportunities to share the gospel, to evangelize. Now, that's, that's in the context of church. When you have a home group, guess what? Our home groups are for all of us who are part of this church so that we can interact and apply God's truth together. But it's not limited to that. It is also a context where you can invite a neighbor to come and sit in that context and to hear what's going on and use it as an evangelistic endeavor. You know, is there anyone not invited to home group? Yes. If you're supposed to go to west, you go to west. If you're supposed to go to east, you go to east, right? But apart from that... No, in other words, we, we, you know, we, we've got to be thinking evangelistically. So if we have a, if we have a small group that is you know, on parenting, and we have some unbelievers come to a class on parenting, what do we say? Oh, no. We want believers here. Is that what we say? No, we say, 
Praise the Lord. And you know, and even though there may be some issues that, that we would really like to jump into that may relate to us, we recognize the big picture that this is a vehicle that God has given us as a church to minister to the body, but also to present the gospel. And so we are adjusting accordingly. So we're, we're, we're always kind of moving in and out of these two things, but we don't want to neglect one or the other. We want to make sure that both have their rightful place. Now, on a practical level, guys, which of those two is going to be harder for us to focus on? Which is the easier one to neglect? It's going to be the evangelism dynamic. Because we can come to church week after week and be very involved and active in all the things that we're doing as a church and completely tune out as it relates to evangelism and think that we're being faithful to our responsibility to the Great Commission. We've got to be careful there. Now, what does this mean? God has placed you in the context of your neighborhoods, in the context of your jobs, in the context of your schools, in the context of where you go regularly, all of those things as spheres of influence, remember that whole moral proximity thing, just to, to live your life for the glory of God and have opportunity to share the gospel with different people. And I would just encourage you, go before God and say, God, give me a boldness, a boldness to kind of open my mouth and create conversations. And I'm, I'm not saying you have to be a salesman. I'm not saying, you know, creative conversation and say, all right, I've got to get them to confess their sin right now, you know. No, you build that relationship and you just naturally bring the gospel to bear. And as, as that person asks you that question, you're like, are they really asking me that question? Do they really want to know the answer to that question? Don't cheese out by giving another one because you're afraid. Open your mouth. Declare the goodness and the glory of God as the reason for the hope that is in you. My friends, this is a, this is a great commission, but it's given to us by a great commander who has given us a great commitment that he will be with us. We're not alone. You may feel that way, but we're not. He is completely and totally with us to the end of the age. Lord, help us to apply these truths, to comprehend them, to wrestle with them. Lord, not to omit any of them, but Lord, to flesh them out. And Lord, we, we, we have a, a, an incredible responsibility. When you speak to us and you command us, we have a great responsibility to listen, to understand what it is you're saying, and then Lord, to be faithful to do it. And Lord, there may have been things I said today that have, that have clouded the water. Lord, I just ask you to remove that. There may have been some things, Lord, that have caused some people to think about their own walk and their, their own pursuits. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would come and, and grab us and teach us and mold us and shape us. Lord, we, we need to be certain that we are doing what you are calling us to do. And Lord, in our frailty, uh, we fear oftentimes what that looks like. We naturally go through the path of least resistance. And Lord, sometimes that means not being evangelistic. And sometimes that means allowing our theology to interfere with our evangelism, knowing that you are sovereign. But Lord, you 
as a sovereign God work through your children. Therefore, we have a responsibility to be faithful to what you've called us to. So Lord, help us to, to grab a hold of that reality and to seek, Lord, to honor you with our lives, both here as well as, Lord, as we do missionary endeavor around the world, Lord, wherever you call us to. Give us wisdom, give us insight, help us, Lord, to be wise in how we do it, with whom we do it, and to what extent, Lord, we do it. But Lord, would you accomplish your will now through us, your church, uh, here at Gateway. We ask in your precious name.